Hello everyone, my name is JB with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message. Today is Friday, December the 29th, 2023, and uh, if you've been with us all week, uh, you know we've been talking about tough texts from Scripture that relate to the doctrine of salvation and the gospel. I did a series of lectures down in Texas last month uh, as a guest lecturer at a Bible college. I taught actually Monday through Friday in an intensive modular course. I had about 20 students in the class and we dealt with a full overview of what the Bible has to say about salvation. And as part of that, about 25 hours of lecture, I did uh, address some some tough texts, some some difficult passages, and so I thought here at the end of the year, uh, since we're out of the office and not able to do uh, our usual daily podcast with guests and topical discussions and so forth, that we would post uh, these five messages. So we started out Monday on Christmas Day, actually, by looking at John chapter 15 and what it means to abide in Christ, and then uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday this week, we looked at James 2, 14 to 26. And what is dead faith? Yesterday we looked at Romans chapter 10 and the issue of confess or believe, and what was Paul, uh, what did Paul mean when he talked about confess and believe? And then uh, today we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3 as we close out uh, the week and talk about the child of God and sin. 1 John chapter 3 is a, a pretty tough text. I mean, it's in, in the English translations, it often really throws you for a loop. Because it makes it sound like that uh, Christians, um, you know, never sin. So we're going to explain what that means. But um, it's been a it's been a good week. Really appreciate the encouraging emails that we've received, and uh, appreciate uh, you taking the time to listen. My family and I uh, are returning home actually today from our uh, trip, uh, and we've had a great couple of weeks on the road just with my extended family, all of the kids, and. Uh, my son Morgan and, and his wife were with us, and my granddaughter Zoe, of course, and I got to see my folks a little bit. Uh, but it's been a great trip and really rejuvenated and excited. And of course, traveling is always a little bit tough, but boy, we've had plenty of time to relax on this trip, and we're rearing and ready to go for the coming year. 2024 is going to be a great year. You know, we've got a lot going on in the world, and uh, the Lord has really. Uh, kind of prepared not by works, by, by your faithful support and encouragement. And we kind of got a lot accomplished this year with some new ministry initiatives and kind of keeping up with our a business plan to kind of grow and expand the ministry. And so we are ready to go and appreciate your prayers and support. We, uh, If you look at our events calendar on notbyworks.org, you can see we start out with a bang in January, February, March, April, speaking at various places across the country and up in Canada, and uh, even out in the Virgin Islands for one uh, conference. And so uh, praise God for that. Keep us in your prayers. Uh, check out the website. Uh, be sure you sign up for our newsletter to stay informed and stay in touch with all that's going on through our ministries. We have a 1-800 number. We have an email address. You can reach out to us uh, and we'll get right back uh, to you. Uh, looking forward to being back in the office next week as we kick off the new year. As always, if you're ever in the Denver, Colorado metropolitan area, you can come visit us at Plum Creek Chapel. That's my home church. It's actually about an hour away from our NBW offices, but when I'm not traveling, I have the privilege of uh, sharing the Word of God from the pulpit at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, we have two services, 8.30 and 10 o'clock on Sundays, and uh, I'll be back in the pulpit this coming Sunday. Uh, and if uh, if you're not able to, to come in person or you're not in the area, you can always live stream. The second service, we live stream my message at the 10 o'clock service. Just go to notbyworks.org and click the live stream button on, uh, on Sundays. So I think that about covers it uh, as we get ready to shift now into this uh, pre-recorded message I gave uh, just a few weeks ago down in uh, Texas on 1 John uh, chapter 3. And uh, since we are wrapping up the year, and I won't be uh, on air again with you until the new year, hard to believe how fast 2023 came and went. But uh, it's not too late if the Lord leads to uh, make a year-end donation to NBW Ministries, if the Lord puts that on your heart. If you share our passion for the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message, if you uh, share our belief that there is a cosmic battle going on between God and Satan that has trickled over into geopolitical events, and, and you've uh, resonated with some of the things I've written about in my Spirit of the Antichrist and Spirit of the False Prophet books of late, 
Uh, and do you believe we need to get that message out to wake up believers and to uh, share the loss, share the gospel with the lost? Then uh, consider making a year-end gift, and we would sure be grateful uh, for that. So God bless you, everyone, and enjoy this message and look forward to talking again next week. Have some great guests lined up, and I know you will enjoy them as much as I do. God bless. And in our remaining time today, I'd like us to talk about one more difficult passage. We've talked about James 2, we've talked about Romans 10, and now let's talk about 1 John 3, another passage that often throws uh, people for a loop. We've talked about John a little bit, or about John's epistle a little bit, when we talked about John 15 in the Upper Room Discourse. That was yesterday. Um, because it's the same human author, uh, a lot of the same terminology, and we looked at the meaning of the word abide, and abide just means to remain in close fellowship with Christ. And so when we talked about that, we also talked about how John's epistle, 1 John, is all about fellowship. It's about tests for fellowship, not tests for life. Most people, even people that really should know better, I've run into some guys that, generally speaking, understand the grace gospel. They're not Calvinists. But for some reason, they're convinced that the book of 1 John is all about how to go to heaven, how to know if you're going to heaven, how to be sure you're a Christian. Tests of life, they call it. Do you really have life? But that misses the whole point. In fact, as if we go back to uh, 1 John 1, he says... Uh, here's here's what he, he's why he's writing. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. I mean, remember who this is, the Apostle John, one of the inner three. And uh, <clears throat> here it is, late first century, six decades, roughly speaking, five or six decades after Christ was crucified and resurrected. And by this time, there are a whole lot of people alive on earth who were born after Jesus had walked the earth. And so these apostles, like John, were, you know, telling eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is, and they're kind of reminding him, now look, our, we, we saw him with our own eyes, we heard him with our own ears, we've looked at him, we've handled him, we've touched him, we were with him. And this is what we're communicating to you. We bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. And what is it? You see it in green there. That you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We want you to have the same kind of fellowship that we had, fellowship along with us. We had fellowship with Him physically, we want you to have the same intimate relationship with Him. These things we're writing to you that your joy may be full. That's why we're writing this letter. Not so that you can find out whether you're a Christian or not, but so that you can have the fullness of joy. And then he jumps right in about fellowship. If you say you have fellowship with Him but walk in the darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. But if we, he includes himself here, so unless you think he's questioning his own salvation, his own eternal salvation, which would be bizarre indeed for a writer of Scripture, he's not talking about eternal salvation. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. right? And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. We're going to come back to verse 8 here in a moment. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We talked about the difference between positional forgiveness and practical forgiveness. I hope if there's one big takeaway from this whole week's lesson, it's to understand the difference between our position and our practice. If you can keep those two concepts distinct, every passage of Scripture you come to that poses uh, interpretive difficulties, it'll, it'll give you a paradigm according to which you can understand it better. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not always about heaven or hell. You, 
you know, you, you are perfectly righteous, but you're not perfectly righteous. How can it bo be both? Well, because you're perfectly righteous positionally in Christ, but you're not perfectly righteous in your practice as you live out our days, right? Uh, you're forgiven of your sins completely, and yet you're not forgiven of your sins. Well, how can that be? Well, because positionally in Christ, forensically, once for all, your total uh, guilt, you're forgiven. Nothing can change that. You're going to you know, have an eternity in heaven. But in a daily state, as we get out of fellowship with the Lord, that fellowship is broken. Remember what we talked about yesterday with the family of God versus the fellowship with God. And we need to confess those sins to restore that fellowship. It has nothing to do with our eternal destiny. It's all about fellowship. It's a key word in John's epistle. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, right? You know, if we say that we do not sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's what John wants, not so they'll know they're a Christian. He just wants them to know sin is not good. Sin is destructive. So I'm writing this to keep you from sinning. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Verse 6 of chapter uh, 2, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You can't think of a better statement. I can't think of a better statement that describes the goal of the Christian life. Remember what we said yesterday. Our goal is for our practice to reflect our position. Our position is perfect righteousness. We want our practice to reflect that. That's what John's saying here. He who says he abides in him, well, you ought to walk as he walked. You can't be abiding in Christ in close fellowship with Him. Remember, abide just means remain. Meno, remain in close fellowship is the idea. Remain close to. You can't be remaining close to Him and not walking the way He walked. If you're walking in sin, you're as far away from the Lord as you can be. And, and John's going to go on to say that sin is sourced in the old man. So let's pick it up at the end of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So why is he bringing up the return of the Lord? Well, he's already brought up eschatology at the beginning of chapter 2, um, uh, or the, uh, toward the middle. Uh, this is a key verse for my latest book series. Little children, it is the last hour, and you've heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming, but even now many Antichrists have come, little a, by which we know it's the last hour. Uh, so be aware, you know, be sensitive, recognize there's a spiritual battle taking place, and then he, he ends up in chapter end of chapter 2. So therefore, abide in him, remain close to him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Verse 29, again, remembering that the verse uh, breaks were not in the original letter. If you know, and it's first class conditional, since, since you know that he is righteous, he being Jesus, capital H, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now let's do a little word study on that word practice. It's the word poieo. And it, if you'll see here, it means to make or to do. I remember it vividly from my, uh, my Greek days. Make or do, make or do, make or do, right? So when the New Testament English translates it practices, that's a little bit misleading. It almost implies like if you do this a lot, <clears throat> but it's not talking about it. It's just if you do what is righteous. So everyone who does righteous things is born of him because if you're not born of him you couldn't possibly do righteous things right remember what isaiah said righteous acts are like a filthy rag to a holy god god's not impressed by our righteous deeds but he is righteous so remember that i've double underlined it there if you know that he is righteous or since you know now John reflects in verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us 
that we should be called children of God. And that really is amazing that we are a child of God. It, it's the great restoration, right? We were in fellowship with God, perfect harmony in the garden. We sinned, but now through Christ we can be made back right with him again and be a child of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. He's trying to make the connection here between Christian living and the reflection of Christ. If, if, if it weren't for Christians on the earth today in the present age, nobody would really know who Christ is. I mean, we are to reflect him. I understand there's general revelation. God has revealed himself through nature and providence and conscience. I get all that. But our job is to be image bearers and to reflect Christ, to be a light on a hill for them, as Jesus said, to see our good works and glorify God who's in heaven. That's our job, and that's one of the reasons John is so passionate here about encouraging us to remain in fellowship with him, because when we're not in fellowship with him, we're not fulfilling our duty. We're not fulfilling our purpose, right? Um, you know, you've heard it said, you know, you're the only Jesus some people will ever see. Well, I think there's two reasons why, you know, a lost person uh, doesn't get saved, why people don't get saved. Uh, number one, they've never met a Christian. But number two is they've met a Christian, <laughs> you know. And, and when Christians don't act like Christians, it turns people off. And it, it, uh, it causes people to, to say, well, that's what Christianity is. I don't want any part of it. John's trying to prepare his readers and us by extension to not make that mistake. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when he is revealed we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, our task is to be like Christ. We know that he is perfectly righteous, and positionally, because we're in him, we are too. Someday that's what's going to be our ticket into heaven. But we, unlike him, are not practically righteous. Jesus never sinned on his whole entire earthly life. We do. And so John is just reminding us that we shouldn't do that, and the whole point of his letter is for us to remain in fellowship with him so we can be a light to this world. But he's also reminding us, but don't worry, hang on, someday when you see him, when he is revealed at the second coming, when he comes back, he's unveiled, phanerao uh, 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 is what that is, but uh, then we will see him as he is. And, and this is a hope for us. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself, and notice what I've highlighted in green there, just as he is pure. So the, the perfect purity of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ that he talked about there in verse 29, is a goal, it's a target, it's a motivator for us as we seek to purify ourselves and be like Christ. That's the goal. And so then this next section, appropriately titled in the New King James uh, Bible as a heading, not part of the original text, Sin and the Child of God. So this passage is so abused and misunderstood that it, it really can only lead to de defeat, guilt, and just uh, a cycle of never really being sure of your salvation. So John goes on to say in verse 4, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. Remember we, we talked about how that's parabasis. Oh, I'm sorry, anomia, anomas, anomia, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is just a little bit of sin. Is that what it says? No. How much sin is there in Jesus? So when you're abiding in Jesus, how much sin is there in you? None. So critical to understand this. Jesus is 100% pure. He's 100% righteous. There's zero sin in him. He's painting this picture. And in fact, Jesus' whole point of coming was to take away our sins. It's, it's a similar argument from a different vantage point that Paul makes in Romans 6 through 8. You know, you've been set free from sin. Why would you want to go back and lock yourselves up in this prison house of sin? You've been set free from the the old man's clothes, why would you want to put on those old tattered and torn clothes when you've got a brand new you know, uniform, so to speak? 
So Jesus took away our sins, so why would we want to sin? In him there's no sin. And then here is where we begin to see some of the bad interpretation. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, other translations, let's look at the NASB first. Pretty solid. No one who abides in him sins. Verse 6. Let me highlight that for us. All right, that's what the text says. Let's look at the ESV. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Hmm, what does that mean? Keeps on sinning. How many of you, if I said, how many of you keep on sinning? We'd probably be a little hesitant to raise our hands because there's something implicit within saying it that way that makes us, I'm not sure I really want to admit to that. So let me ask it a different way. How many of you sinned yesterday? How many of you sinned on Tuesday? How many of you sinned on Monday? Man. And some people aren't raising their hands. I know. They just sinned today. Yeah. They just lied. They sinned today. Yeah. Let me think. Let me make sure I'm understanding this. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it sounds like you keep on sinning, <laughs> right? <laughs> Every day of your life, amen, till, till glory. So the ESV says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. NIV, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Let's see what NLT says. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. Okay. All right, so what's going on here? Well, first of all, we've already defined ad nauseum abides. If you don't understand what abide means by now, you're going to get that quiz question wrong. Um, whoever abides, who remains in close fellowship with him, does not sin. We're going to come back to this in verse 9, because it's even more blatant in some of the English translations there. But what a lot of commentators will try to suggest is that abiding means be a Christian. I've already talked to you about how MacArthur thinks that in John 15. So the way they read verse 6 here is whoever's a Christian does not sin. Well, we all know that we sin, right? A matter of fact, if you go back uh, to verse uh, or to chapter 1, uh, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, <laughs> right? So John's already made it clear, look, we're all sinners, okay? No doubt about that. And if you think otherwise, you're turning God into a liar, right? In fact, he also says, oops, hold on. Uh, let me go back. He says, uh, not to beat a dead horse here, but verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, right? So back to 1 John 3, if abiding in Christ means be a Christian, then the way you would interpret verse 6 and the way many people do is whoever is a Christian does not sin. Well, since we know we sin, and John's already told us that, of course, if you say you're not, you don't sin, you're a liar, then they have to, kind of like they do with James, they have to insert words here. Like in James, we talked about how he inserts that faith, such faith, that kind of faith. Well, here they insert this concept of does not habitually sin or does not continue to sin, right? Does not keep on sinning if you're a Christian, which only creates more questions than it does answers because if I sinned Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, is that keeping on sinning? And if it is, then I'm not a Christian, the way most people interpret this verse. So in the same way that Understanding James 2, 14 to 26 comes down to understanding the meaning of the word save. Understanding 1 John 3 comes down to understanding the meaning of the word abide. To abide does not mean to be a Christian. It means to, as a Christian, stay in close fellowship with him. And when you abide in Christ, you can't be sinning. See, you can't claim to be abiding in Christ and sinning. You know, if you are... Let's just say you're, you're caught in a, in a sin. Maybe you're lying, cheating, doing drugs. I don't know. Just picture some outward sin that would be obvious to have your hand caught in the cookie jar. We'll use that metaphor, right? And, uh, you know, Brett comes up to you as the president of the school and leader and 
head mentor, and he says, uh, hey, uh, I don't know, Bob, is there a Bob in here? Well, we're going to say, we're going to go back to old, our friend Horatio then. <laughs> so he goes, hey, Horatio, what you doing? Oh, oh, like the canary, you know, cat caught with the canary. Oh, nothing, nothing. Well, it looks to me like you're sinning. And uh, Horatio's going to go, yeah, I guess I am. Well, what's causing you to do that? Well, I'm just sitting here abiding so close to Christ and in such great fellowship with Him that it led me to sin. Would that make any sense? Heresy. Yeah. Of course not. Of course he's not going to say that. He knows, and we all know, when we sin, when we cater to the flesh and walk in the flesh, we're not walking with Christ. We're, we're ashamed. It goes all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were ashamed. They hid. They wanted to be away from God, right? Now, God, of course, is all-knowing and all-loving, and He sought them out, and He provided the covering. He provided the sin atonement. Imagine what that must have been like. I mean, I think... After 6,000 years of human history, we've completely under-emphasized under and lost the significance of sin. I mean, it, I mean we, we call it weakness, limitation. We just downplay it. But sin is pretty serious. And, and you can just imagine what it must have been like for Adam and Eve. They'd never seen physical death, never seen blood, never seen an animal that died and here they because of their sin God slayed these animals in front of them took their skins ripped off their hide I've gutted you know dozens of deer in my life uh, bucks does you name it it's pretty tough thing to skin a deer to skin a buck he rips this hide off these animals blood everywhere and it puts it on them to cover their sin and their shame I think that would have got their attention. I think they knew, boy, this is serious. Sin is serious. And so you can't be claiming to be in close fellowship. I'm just right over here with my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We're buddy-buddy. We're right here together while I commit all these sins. You, you do it in, in secret, right? You do, it, you do it away from the Lord. You can't be abiding in Christ and sinning at the same time. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 6, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. We talked about this earlier. There is a, an experiential uh, nuance to these two phrases, seen him and known him. But of course, if you're a Calvinist or a Reformed theologian or someone who thinks that you know, anytime you have a bunch of sin in your life, you're obviously not a Christian, then you think only in terms of all or nothing. It's all heaven, hell, zero-sum game. So you've either seen him or you haven't. You're either a Christian or you're not. Well, that's not true. Uh, we use both of those terms in English uh, similarly in, in, in a non-absolute sense, right? We can use them in an absolute sense. Uh, like Brett and I had lunch today, and he said, do you know so-and-so, a name that I had never heard of? And I said, I don't think I've ever met him. I don't know them. I never met them. Don't have a clue who they are. But, you know, we might also know people that we know in common. We have an absolute knowledge of them in the sense that we, we have met them. We know who they are. But one of us might know them better than the other. He might be better friends with them than I am, right? You know, someone might say to me, hey, we're looking for someone to, uh, you know, to lead uh, a, a uh, program at the church. And we were thinking Sally might be good for that. And I'd go, no, I don't think so. And they might say, man, we know Sally. She seems like a pretty great gal. You know, been in the church a few years. Man, she'd be good for that. And I'd go, yeah, you don't know Sally like I know Sally. <laughs> she doesn't like to be up front and in charge and that kind of thing. So we both know Sally, but I know her in, in, a, in a closer way. I know more about her, right? And as I mentioned uh, earlier this week, knowledge in Scripture, knowing the Lord, can have an absolute sense. You either know Him or not by being born again, by faith, but you can also know Him more intimately. And that's what Paul wanted to do in Ephesians, Philippians 3 when he said, I want to know Christ and the power of His suffering and the uh, power of His resurrection and all that. <clears throat> Paul wasn't saying, I want to get saved, I want to be a Christian. 
he was already a Christian. He's just saying, I want a deeper knowledge and love and fuller knowledge of, of him. And that's what John's been talking about here. <coughs> you don't have that close, intimate, full knowledge of, of Christ when you're sinning in that moment. Same thing with seeing him. Uh, by the way, uh, remember we said Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you all this time and you have not known me? He wasn't accusing Philip of being a non-Christian, an unbeliever. He's just saying, you don't know me well enough yet, right? Same thing with seen. We could say, you know, have you seen uh, Cody? And if I come in and ask, hey, anybody seen Cody? I I'm, I'm not asking, have you ever seen him? You're not going to go, oh, yeah, he's, you know, about 5'10", brown hair, you know, whatever. You're going to, you, you know what I mean. What I mean is, have you seen him lately, right? So that's what John's saying here. He's trying to describe the fact that because there's no sin in Jesus, uh, because he's 100% righteous, 100% pure, when we abide in him, we're not going to sin. You can't be abiding in Christ and sinning at the same time. It has nothing to do with how much sin. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because we're really going to hammer this home when we get down to verse 9. But the common interpretation of this passage is that you can, you can be a Christian as long as you're not keeping on sinning, habitually sinning, continually sinning, right? Which flies in the face of the whole point John makes three different times at the lead up to this statement about how much sin is in Christ. That's why I tongue-in-cheek said, in him there is just a little bit of sin, verse 5, right? Because for the common interpretation to make sense, it would have to be saying, look, your model is Jesus. In him there's only a little bit of sin. So as long as there's only a little bit of sin in you, then you can be a Christian. But if you've got more than a little bit of sin, you've crossed a line and therefore you have never seen him or known him in a positional sense, you're not a Christian. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says there's no sin in Jesus because you can't have any sin in your life and claim to be in close fellowship with him. Verse 7, let, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, there's that word again, poieo, what did we say that means? Does, to do or to make. So he who does what is righteous. I wonder how some of these other translations, just curious. Yeah. King James, good, good shout out to the King James here. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness, he that does what is righteous. Um, let's see what New, and Nasby says, practices, practices. Uh, what is ESV? Verse 7, practice. Yeah, most of them say practices, but it's just the word do, right? What? Oh, what does it say? Well, I'll be the judge of that. All right, now i got to figure out how to open up Young's. Here we go. Young's. Verse 7. Who is doing the righteousness. Yeah, that's pretty wooden, but yeah, doing. Good point. All right, so we found another one. Doing. Doing the righteousness. <laughs> All right, back back to the uh, the New King James. He who practices, and again, that just means do does. Who who does what is righteous is righteous, just as he is righteous. I mean, you following his argument here? Since he is righteous, when we you know are doing what he wants us to do, we're going to be doing what's righteous. Since he is righteous, you can't be claim, claim to be abiding in him and doing what is unrighteous, right? Verse 8, he who sins is of the devil, right? He who sins is of the devil. The, again, people think in a terms of all or nothing. You're either a Christian or not. Clearly, if you're sinning, you're of the devil. Uh, how does uh, some of these others translate verse 8? Uh, does what is sinful... Yeah, verse 9 is the real one that becomes a quagmire. Oh, here, look at the ESV. Talk about a Calvinistic interpretation. Uh, he who, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
Whoever makes a practice, that's not what the text says. Let me show it to you again in, in Greek. Uh, so we're talking about verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. Uh, verse 8. He, the one who sins, poion, does sins, you know, commits sins, is of the devil. It doesn't say, make anything about making a practice of sin, right? That's a complete uh, addition to the text. But of course, if you think that habitual sin in your life means you're going to hell, then of course you're going to translate the Greek text that way. But all it says is, he who sins is of the devil. In other words, sin is always sourced in the devil. Just as in Jesus, is there is no sin. Remember that up here in verse uh, uh, 3? No, verse 4. In him there is no sin. In him there is no sin. Well, then where is it? If it's not in him, it's in the devil. So when you sin, that's sourced in the devil. As I say in the note here, all sin of any kind or type is satanic. Only righteousness springs from a righteous nature. See, no one can say, oh, there's that new nature in me, once again, manifesting itself in sin. <laughs> no, it's the old man. The devil has sinned from the beginning. For this, the purpose, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now here, verse 9, is where really people like to, to harp on that, that, that think that you're going to hell if you habitually sin. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. All right, how do some of these other translations? Uh, uh, NASB, not bad. ESV, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. We saw that earlier. NIV, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. I mean, just think about that. I mean, that, that right there... I'm trying to find a new color here. How about blue? Ought to be reason enough never to use the NIV. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not normally, you know, critical of English translations because I know they all have their strengths and weaknesses, but according to the NIV in, in 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. They think born of God means be a Christian. That's quite clear. It doesn't say continue to sin. It says sin, Right? And it doesn't say, where's verse 8? Uh, I mean, verse 9. Yeah, whoever has been born again does not sin. It doesn't say will continue to sin or habitually sin. What does uh, New Living say? Do not make a practice of sinning. ESV does not make a practice of sinning. I mean, that sounds so nice, right? Because we've heard it so many times, it just resonates. We go, oh yeah, if they're habitually sinning, if they're practicing sin, just doing it, making it a practice, it's routine in their life, well, they can't possibly be a Christian. Well, do we need to do another show of hands? How many of you sinned yesterday, the day before, the day before, the day before, right? How many of you are struggling with sin today that you've been struggling with since the day you got saved? Yeah. Do you think that the reason why they put translations such as continue to sin because they make no distinction between the old man and the new creation. So they just say, this person as a whole continue to sin versus the old man sinning versus the new man sinning. Yeah, I think they, they do not like that distinction. In fact, uh, Calvinists do not believe you have a sin nature as a believer. They will absolutely deny that. They, they, they say, call it the flesh, which, of course, the Bible also calls it that, but they think the new nature eradicates the old nature. That's Calvinism 101. They do not believe in the duality of the nature of the believer. When you get saved, the new nature completely eradicates the old nature. So, you know, you'll talk to them, and I've had arguments with Calvinists, uh, you know, okay, well, call it what you want, I'll say, but do you ever sin? And they admit it, and then I go, well, whatever it is that's causing that in you, that's what you've got, okay? And then they also say Romans 7, a lot of them, not all of them, like MacArthur doesn't take this view, but most Calvinists do, that Romans 7 is speaking about Paul's pre-conversion life. They don't think Romans 7 is his testimony as a believer. They think he's describing what life was like before he got saved. And before he got saved, he struggled with these two natures, but now he's saved and he doesn't have that old nature anymore, right? Yeah. Do you know 
believe that there is a, a sin nature? I'm sure there are some. Do I know of any Calvinist who would believe there's a sin nature? I'm sure there are some. Uh, I can't think of any notable ones off 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 the top of my head. I mean, it it is it is pretty quintessential Calvinism to deny the sin nature in the life of the believer. Now, some of it's semantics because, like I said, they will talk about the flesh because, of course, Paul talks about the flesh in Galatians five. That's you can't really get around that. Uh, so they try to talk about it being an external influence the flesh instead of an internal influence. There's nothing within you that is drawing you away from the Lord to sin. It all is good, and, and so why aren't you perfect? Why aren't you living righteously? If you're habitually sinning, uh, then you should... Uh, someone, while we're talking, look up one of these translations. I thought said habitually instead of continually. I'd love to find out which one that is. But yeah, uh, Brett. I think, I think that often, too, uh, the flesh is the human body. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the, and so you've got, it's your brain. Your brain's got these ruts in it. You just need to retrain your human body, get it new habits. Yeah. Right. View. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I say, they would say the flesh, but they, to me, the flesh is a, is a synonym for the sin nature. I have a much more simplistic <laughs> understanding of the, of the duality of our nature. And I believe, as I described in my chart, I think it was yesterday of Ephesians 6. Remember the Cowboy fan and the Packers fan, right? Um, the new man has the fruit of the Spirit, but he's got that old man still there. So the new nature comes alongside the old nature, gives us the capacity to do what's right, gives us the convicting work of the Spirit within us that we should <laughs> heed and yield to and then produce the fruit of the Spirit. Whereas the Calvinist would say, no, no, it completely eradicates that. And any sins that you do commit, because of course... Calvinism teaches you sin. They're not saying perfection. That's the holiness you know, movement and all of that. That's, that's not Calvinism. They acknowledge you sin, but they just say you can't make a practice of it. You can't habitually do it. You can't keep on sinning. You can't sin for very much. You can't fall the whole way. They use all these qualifiers that are very ambiguous and, and imprecise, and, and they make that the determining factor of whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. And uh, if you're practicing, if you're making a practice of sin, you're not a Christian. And that, that's really, uh, you know, a works-based, performance-based model that really leads to nothing but doubt. Did someone have a question over here? Yeah. Now that you just took a bite. <laughs> so one thing I was wondering is because the King James and the New King James say does not sin, whereas the newer translations say does not make a practice of or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. One thing I've noticed in going through a bunch of different translations for certain passages is sometimes the translations based on the Texas Receptus will say one thing, whereas the newer ones will say something different because they are based upon different Greek texts that have slight variations. In sure. Them. And so I'm wondering if this is an instance where it's not they're intentionally um, writing something different Whereas maybe the no, that's not what's going on here. So the good comment, though. The question is, sometimes differences in translation relate to, are you translating from the TR, the Textus Receptus, uh, which is the Erasmus's fifth edition of all the manuscripts that he compiled together, which were then given to the King James Committee to translate the Bible in 1611. And by the way, one of the problems I have with the King James only perspective is that there are certain aspects in the Erasmian text that are not found in any other of the five, 6,000 manuscripts that we have in our availability, which proves that he wrote them there. The doctrine of the preservation of the text tells us that we're going to have the original text somewhere within the documents, and they didn't disappear for 1,500 years until Erasmus put them in there. That just doesn't make sense. Uh, so sometimes if you're basing it on the Erasmian TR versus, say, the majority text or the critical text, which are the two other more common ones used today, the, the New King James is based on the majority text, which is not technically speaking the same as the Textus Receptus, and the every other translation is based on what's called the critical text, or like I said, the Nestle Alon and UBS hybrid. Um, so you know, sometimes it's an issue of what manuscript are you translating from. But that's not what's going on here. The, if you read the commentaries, they are appealing to the so-called progressive 
use of the, uh, of the present tense. So in other words, because this phrase, uh, let's go back to the New King James, does not sin, uh, does not, present active indicative, they say, oh, that's a, that's a, there's a particular use of the present tense called the progressive present, which means ongoing. And so, uh, but the fact of the matter is, and top scholars like A.T. Roberts and, 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 and top Greek scholars have all shown this again and again, that there's no such grammatical indicator in the text. You cannot look at a word and say, oh, that's a progressive present. It's got to be determined from other words around it. You can't just assume that it's progressive. In fact, I'm going to show you in a moment how in John's own uh, letter, he, he, if, if you consistently apply this so-called progressive present, it would turn John into a liar. It'd make him contradict himself. But it just does not sin. It's a present active indicative. So if I, if, if, uh, you know, Brett said, do you, do you eat uh, gumbo? And I'll go, yeah, I eat gumbo. Does that mean I'm habitually, consistently making a practice of eating gumbo? Present active indicative? No, I just, I eat gumbo, right? So this no notion that simply because it's using a present active indicative verb, it really means he continually, ongoing, habitually practices sin on a regular basis is not in the text. Now, let's go back to, I mentioned we were going to do this a moment ago. Let's see if I can find it again. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin or if, if we say we have not sinned, that's even better, right? Uh, if, if the progressive present was consistent, John would be saying, if we say that we habitually don't sin, we're lying. But then later on in chapter 3, they have him saying, if you habitually sin, you're not a Christian. Well, which is it? <laughs> you can't have it both ways, right? So they just, when it's convenient, switch to this progressive. And for those who don't know any better and reading these commentaries, you know, they'll read it and they'll go, oh yeah, this Greek scholar, it says, uh, you know, he's, uh, it's, a, it's the habitual present, the progressive present, you know, and it mean, so it must mean they habitually sin. And it's just made up. It's just not even logical. And, it, and we don't do that with any other language. But again, you, you bring in this presupposition that believers don't sin a lot, or they don't sin for very long, or they don't sin for very long in a row, or they don't commit the same sins for very long in a row, or in a row, whatever uh, qualifier you want to give it. Uh, and if that's your presupposition, the Calvinist presupposition, that perseverance of the saints, that all believers will persevere in good works, then you've got a problem here because uh, you know that you know John, uh, uh, you know John says otherwise. So. Two problems here. Number one, abiding doesn't mean be a Christian. It just means stay close to the Lord. But it also says when you're abiding in Christ, you won't sin, period. Not just that you won't sin a lot or won't sin habitually. You won't sin, period. You, the, the born of God part of you never sins. Zero. The new nature never sins. Sin is always sourced in the devil. And whoever has been born of God does not sin. The born of God part of you doesn't sin. Um, his seed, whose seed over here? His seed remains in him, he says. For his seed remains in him. Whose seed? Well, go back up to verse uh, 4. It's Jesus Christ's seed who, in whom there is how much sin? None. So when you're living out the new nature in Christ seed of Christ within you cannot sin right and that's John's whole point is look guys if you want to make a difference in this world if you want to enjoy the fullness of God's joy if you want to have sweet fellowship with your Savior the one who died and rose again for your sins stick close to him and then the more you remain in close fellowship with him the more you'll overcome sin in your life and every time we sin it's because we've gotten away from the Lord. You can't be sinning and walking with the Lord Jesus in sweet fellowship at the same time. Make sense? Yeah. yeah. I found that translation of habitually sin. It's the Amplified Bible. Oh, the Amplified. Okay. Let me pull that up here. 
Amplify. All right, so here's the Amplified. A lot of people really brag, oh, the Amplified's great. It's literal, but it's, it's got all sorts of theological. Uh... By the way, you see what I'm doing here? This is a Logos tip since we did Logos this morning and yesterday. When you open a book, a lot of times it'll have, by default, see these little underlines, these dashes? Those are called popular highlights. And if you click on it, say 104 people highlighted this. Well, I don't mean to be rude, but I could care less what the general public thinks about this verse. I don't really need to know. I'm studying it for myself. So it doesn't matter to me how many people underline it. I'm not, this isn't a social media construct where I'm trying to be like everybody else. I just want to let the text speak for itself. So the first thing I do, and this only happens on books that I haven't opened in a while. Once you use them all the time, you have that turned off by default. But you go up here to this little button and you click turn off popular highlights. So anyway, what are we looking for? First John 3. Uh, six was it? Yeah, habitually. Six. No one who abides in him lives and remains in communion with and in obedience to him deliberately, knowingly, or habitually commits sin. So that it's weird. They get it right on the first part. Just trying to highlight this. They get it right. No one abide who abides in him, which means to remain in communion with him and obedience to him. But then they get it wrong when it comes to poieo, committing sin. Will deliberately, knowingly, and habitually sin. How many, I mean, is there such a thing as a non-deliberate sin? Accident. I mean, you could accidentally do something, but I mean, I mean, I know there's sins of omission and commission and all that, but don't you, if it's involuntary, how can you be held accountable for that sin, right? Don't you choose to sin. I don't know. I don't even understand what they mean there, but that's not what the text says. I don't think this one has an interlinear. It doesn't. But, you know, let's go back to verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Right? Hamartano. You know. Really, that's amazing that Amplified practices sin. Yeah, it's just Present active indicative with a negator at the front does not sin. There's the not, ooh, sin, hamartano, present active indicative. Where do you get the idea of com- habitually? It's not there. Right? It's, it's totally um, driven by theology. Yes. Yep. Totally driven by, uh, by theology. Here's a couple of quotes here that I thought were interesting. Um, uh, this is just repeating what I tried to point out a moment ago from 1 John 1, 8. The appeal to the Greek tense, th- this type of appeal to the Greek tense, so he calls this uh, the uh, progressive present. Let's see if where it says it. Can you make it a little bigger? Yeah, hang on just a second. Um, Yeah, so we, if he wanted to indicate habitually, there are plenty of words in the Greek text that he could have used uh, to do that. No first century Greek reader or hearer was likely to get a meaning such as the one the NIV imports here uh, without the necessary uh, uh, additional words. Expository discourse, of which the first letter of John is an example, employs it, the present predominantly for its zero tense of factual actuality. In other words, the present tense just says nothing about the kind or extension or duration of the action. It's just, this is what is. You're sinning, right? Um, so he says, uh, if he used the same technique elsewhere in the epistle, you'd have a problem, as we pointed out. If we translate 1 John 1, 1.8 to say, quote, if we say that we do not continually have sin, we deceive ourselves, which, of course, would contradict 3.9, um, because if someone who is born of God does not continually sin, why wouldn't we say, I do not continually sin, <laughs> Right? Why would he not say that? It just—it's a contradiction. Um, so it's uh, Sake Kubo, uh, kind of was a, who was a, a key Greek scholar. That's who the S Kubo there is. Completely flushed away this nonsense of the habitual present in a 1969 article. It's just not biblically. It's not exegetically correct or grammatically uh, correct. So, uh, any questions about First John? 
three, if you understand, kind of like James, that John's talking about fellowship here and how when we're close to Christ, we're not sinning. So if we want to overcome sin in our lives and enjoy the, the joy of the Lord, let's stay close to Christ. When you are sinning, it's an indication you're not close to Christ. Get closer to Him. Fall in love with Him. Get to know Him. Go back to what we said before lunch, the no trust, obey model. The more you know Him, the more you'll trust Him. The more you trust Him, the more you'll obey Him. Um, but sin is always sourced in the uh, old nature. Yeah. Um, so, just curious how you would approach this. Verse 10 of chapter 3 when it says, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. It almost makes it seem as in it's a way to determine who is of God and who is of the devil. It is. That's exactly what it's saying. has nothing to do with whether you're saved or not. So 1 John 3.10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Could, could that ever describe a believer? Well, that's my point. What did we say earlier? When you come across a tough passage, what's the first thing you need to think about? Positional truth versus practical truth. See, you read that, and, and everyone reads that, and thinks, oh, Children of God, children of the devil, that's got to be Christians and non-Christians, and this is how you tell which is which. But that's not what he's talking about at all. Remember, Peter was not just called a child of the devil, he was called the devil himself. So you can be a Christian and be the devil, <laughs> and you can certainly be a Christian and be a child of the devil, practically, not positionally. Positionally, we're part of the family of God. But in practice, you know, you can act like the devil. Because that's the whole point that he's been making here, is that when you sin, you're of the devil. Verse 8, sin is always of the devil. Sin is always satanic. Sin is never divine. Sin never sourced in the new nature or the divine nature. So yeah, absolutely, verse 10 is very clear. Uh, when I see someone sinning, that's a child of the devil. By the way, having six kids, I've had some little devils around my life a few times, you know. Uh, what's that? <laughs> so, no, seriously, I mean, you, you're not, when you're not practicing righteousness, that's not of God. That's what he's saying there. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Does not mean they're not a Christian. See, people read into this, this all-or-nothing concept. But when you think about it, even if we didn't have basic rules of hermeneutics to properly understand these passages in their context, we ought to be able to know experientially that, look, Christians sin. <laughs> So, you know, how, since that's the case, and since it's the case that there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit, I cannot look at two people's behavior and tell you unequivocally whether one's a Christian or not. I mean, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but if you've got a person who's living in wanton carnality and sin, one of two things is always true. Either they're a believer or they're not a believer. I mean, I hate to make light of it. And by the way, it, sometimes when I'm passionate about these things, it might come across as if I'm saying that sin isn't serious. Sin is absolutely serious. I hope I got that point across yesterday. It has deadly, devastating, horrific consequences. It'll destroy lives. But it's exasperating to me when people make uh, the presence or absence of sin in your life the determining factor as to whether or not you go to heaven, because it's not. Faith alone is the only determining factor. It's a free gift. If it's not free, it's not a gift. If it's not a gift, it's not free. And I'm not going to allow people to continue to point to behavior and hastily conclude whether someone's going to heaven or not. So if you're sinning, stop it. It's a terrible thing, and it's going to cause a problem in your life. But thankfully, it won't keep you in or out of heaven because our eternal destiny is not based upon our works. Yeah. Yeah, I think this passage is talking positionally because he talks about our faith is the one that overcomes the world, but he's not speaking uh, in a sense here of ca uh, causality, right? It's like uh, if I say believers are generous, does that mean if you're not generous, you're not a believer? No, right? 
So, obviously, if you believe Jesus is the Christ, you're born of God. Everyone who loves, you can't love and not be born of God, right? But you can be born of God and not love, right? We don't love all the time. And that goes back to the verse you pointed at a minute ago in 3.10, was it? Nor, you know, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Does that mean any time I have hatred in my heart towards someone else, I'm not a Christian? I mean, it gets pretty personal if you apply the same theological principles that Calvinists like to apply to others to themselves. So you mean to tell me you've never hated anyone? Because the way they interpret the verse, if you have, then you're not a Christian. Now, should we hate? I'm not defending hate. I think hate's, you know, bad. I'm on record. Hate, bad. Got it? But it doesn't make, it doesn't, you know, we sometimes hate, right? Uh, so, yeah, I think in John, 1 John 5, he's just saying, he's making a statement. Sometimes these are just flat-out statements, not conditions. Uh, that's what we see in Galatians 5, you know. Uh, those who do these things, uh, jealousy, ambition, uh, selfish ambitions, contentions, sexual adultery, murders, envy, all the list of the laundry list of the sins, and anything like that, he says, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that mean because you do those things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God? No, it's just a statement of fact, right? We see that in several places. We see it in Revelation. We see it. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. This is kind of instructive. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Um, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, we know that's positional truth. Paul talks about that extensively, especially in Romans. It's you have to be righteous positionally to get into heaven. But then he says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. What's the context? Is he saying, If you do this, ever have done that, you're going to hell? And it guarantees you're not a Christian? It might sound like that at first, but it's just a statement of fact. The qualifier is the unrighteous, right? First, he says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. Then he describes some of the unrighteous. And then he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified. In fact, if you read the whole argument of 1 Corinthians, his point is, you used to do this, but you were born again. You were declared righteous by faith. Now you're starting to do it again. Don't do like that. Why do you want to go back and act like hellbound people? You're no longer hellbound, so stop acting like hellbound people, right? He's not ever saying that because you do this, you go to hell. You have to compare, to interpret the obscure in light of the clear. Compare Scripture with Scripture. If, if, in fact, this verse or the one about hating your brother or Galatians 5 uh, or Ephesians 5 and some of these passages, if they were saying no homosexual can ever get into heaven because of his homosexuality, now I've got a problem. Now, all of those 160 passages in the New Testament that tell us eternal life is conditioned upon faith alone need another little asterisk beside them that say, you know, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. Unless you're a homosexual, you're done for. You can't get in. Or unless you, and it's not just homosexuality, by the way, it's other sexual sins. It's hatred, ambition, jealousy, covetousness. It's not just the biggies, so-called, right? So you need all these asterisks if these laundry lists like 1 Corinthians 6 uh, are intending to communicate that if you do this, then you are curtains. Forget it, you can't get in. They're just statements of fact, just descriptions that are, uh, in this case, speaking about unbelievers, right? Yeah. Well, uh, Ephesians definitely has it. I know that. Yeah, they could put off all these. Yeah. 
But anyway, it's basically saying don't do what the world... Oh, yeah, verse, verses 5 and 6. Put to death the members of your body which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, right? In other words, don't do what yeah. the, those, those people are going to get. The wrath of God's coming on these people, so why are you going to do the things that they do? Right. Why would you want to act like a hellbound person? Yeah. Right? Ephesians 5, another great passage. Um, yeah, for, but fornication, uncleanness, covetous, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Why would Paul tell these people not to do these things if doing them meant they went to hell when he's already called them saints? It's possible for saints, for believers, to do these things, and Paul says don't do like them. Uh, don't act like them. So again, let's, let's read it, because you're right, this is a really clear one. I think 1 Corinthians 6 is clear too because he says the unrighteous and then he describes the unrighteous. But, but fornication and all uncleanness, this is Ephesians 5.3 for those who might be listening to the audio. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetous, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Ne neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know. So what's the motivation for not doing these things? No fornicator, unclean person, covetous man, or who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So now, not only homosexuals, but now you've got covetous people. <laughs> no covetous person will end up in heaven. That's not what he's saying. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Parallel passage with Colossians 2 or 3. Therefore do not be partakers with them. That's the context. Don't uh, act like this, not because if you do, it sends you to hell, or not because if you do, it proves you're not a Christian. That's the way Calvinists take those passages. But because the people who do those things characteristically, are those are the fruit of the flesh. Those are the things that are, are people sold under sin are doing. Why would you want to act like someone who the wrath of God is coming upon? I don't want that. I don't want to act like that, right? kids, I would say, why are you doing the things that people would go to jail to? Yeah. I love that. Why are you doing something that people go to jail for, right? I mean, that's what I'd say to Biden if I had the chance to talk to him, you know? <laughs> if we lived in a system of real justice, he might be worried about it. But uh, all right, well, listen, I hope this was helpful. Uh, I know these are tough passages. Uh, we've given you the notes. I didn't give you anything on 1 John 3, but uh, I recommend Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, the, the Zane Hodges wrote the commentary on 1 John there, and that, that's pretty good, uh, although I don't recommend him in general. He's with the Lord now. By the way, the last thing Zane Hodges wrote, if anybody is interested, before he died of a heart attack, which was tragic, was a scathing rebuke of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, in which he called me a five-headed monster. <laughs> he wrote that, and two weeks later he died of a heart attack. I'm not saying there's any connection, of course, but, uh, but, but that's the way it went down. And so I didn't even get the chance to defend myself uh, to him. But anyway, uh, he, went, he, he was teaching some things that I cannot support toward the end of his life, but he has a lot of good stuff to say, and, and that commentary is pretty solid. So, All right, any closing thoughts or anything before we wrap up for the day, or at least my part for the day? So tomorrow morning we will finish up in the first half. I leave at noon, and you guys have Greek after that. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about eternal security and maybe a couple other things. I'm going to have re redo that exercise again. So be thinking about what precisely must someone do to have eternal life. Okay? Yeah. One more quiz. Do you have one more quiz for 